This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we give you the latest on Flex Group volumes and what to expect in ONTAP 9.6. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm in the studio here today. With me is uh, Dan Isaacs. Hi, Dan. Hi, Justin. Everybody needs a Dan. We learned that this morning. <laughs> yes, everybody should have at least one Dan in the room with them at all times. Um, so just a rule of thumb there. Um, with us today on the podcast, uh, Richard Jernigan. Hi, what do you do here at NetApp? As little as I can get away with. That's, Correct. That's, that's my line. <laughs> Correct. So, uh, Richard, uh, it's technically, what's your, what's your job title? Oh, technically. And I, I guess I should be more accurate since my boss is technically in the room with me. Uh, I've been with NetApp for about 15 years now, and I work on uh, development for distributed file systems primarily. So, flex groups. Oh, flex groups. I've heard of those. Yeah. Surprising, right? I, I know you wouldn't have expected me to be working in any sort of related field. So weird. I didn't expect to meet you here. So it's odd. <laughs> um, odd. Sir, do I know you? <laughs> Have we ever met before? Uh, so, did you bring your Dan? I, you I bring did. Dan. I, I, I was worried about not having a Dan for the party, and so I snagged one and, and brought him in the room with me. So, with me, I have Dan Tennant. Hi, Dan. What do you do here at NetApp? Uh, I'm Dan Tennant. I'm the director of uh, software engineering for scale out storage here at NetApp. Um, I've been here about 10 years, uh, worked my way up from. Uh, Developer Richard and I actually wrote the, the Flex Group prototype together, uh, and now they don't let me touch the code anymore. Mm, what does that tell you? <laughs> I don't know. Did you bring your own Dan? Uh, well, I myself am also oh. my own Dan. Okay, we don't want to get too inceptiony here. We don't have Dan's. It's, one, it's Dan's. one of the perks of being a Dan is you can go play <laughs> turtles all the way I've, down. I've already brought my Dan. All right, so um, enough about Dan's. Uh, let's talk about Flex Groups. So we had an episode a while back on Flex Groups, episode 46, when they first were released, and it was just basically like, you know, here's what they are, and here's a deep dive into them. Um, things have changed a bit since then, so we want to cover them again uh, and, and talk about what they are and how to use them and what's new since that episode 46. So, Dan, if you could give us the 10,000-foot view of what a Flex Group is and why you'd want to use one of these things. Sure. So, so flex groups are NetApp's uh, scale-out file system. Uh, they allow you to scale uh, both in capacity, right, to go beyond the hundred terabyte limit of a flex wall, and also to scale in terms of performance, both to to capture more CPU cores and drive more work out of a singular filer, also to drive more uh, nodes against a certain performance load, right? So, to be able to get um, you know very high bandwidth to to a single container. Okay. And you said that you and Richard worked on the code. So what was the genesis of this feature? What was the idea behind it? And like, what kind of got you guys started on it? Oh, wow. How far back in history that, would I go? Yeah, that's going way back. Can, um, you, can you remember so, that far back? I can remember a few things. All so, right. uh, I mean, I mean, essentially at, at some point, right, um, a, a lot of this boils down to just hardware trends, right? C- CPUs are not, you know, scaling the way they used to, right? Moore's law is, is ending dependent on depending on who you talk to, right? So at some point, you have to stop scaling up a, a, a single a single system and start moving into in the scale-out direction. 
Um, you know, Richard and I have both, uh, me, me at prior companies and, and Richard uh, in, in previous uh, experiments have, have messed with file out, scale out file systems before. Um, and it really is, you know, a distributed system is, is the, the best solution to that problem. So um, I'd, have to, I'd have to defer to Richard on exactly what sparked the, the idea that became Flex Groups, if, if we can even go back that far. But I, he's, he's rubbing his forehead like, uh, like maybe we're putting him on the spot. Well, I'm trying to count the number of distributed file systems I've worked on. Uh, we worked with IBM's Transarc Labs back in the day working on AFS and DFS. I worked with Spinnaker Networks, worked at Microsoft for many years on their their uh, storage systems, everything from FAT to NTFS, and went from, oh, let's see, inside NetApp, we've had a number of attempts at scale-out file systems that have all been good at different things. So it, it's kind of hard to say where we started with Flex Groups. I know that when NetApp purchased the Spinnaker Networks, what was it? 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 13 years ago, something like that. Um, one of the reasons they purchased it was because Spinnaker was working on a prototype scale-out file system. I mean, it was a scale-out file system, but they were working in particular on one that hid the boundaries between nodes very well. And it it was uh, eventually called Coral here inside NetApp, and it focused on I.O. bandwidth. That was its primary goal, was just to be able to get great I.O., and it worked really well for that, but it didn't work very well for metadata-heavy workloads. So NetApp spun up a couple different projects to try to deal with metadata-heavy workloads. And where we ended up, just to gloss over all the complexities in between, is with flex groups that can handle both I.O. and metadata-heavy traffic. All right, so let's talk a little bit deeper about that. Because, you know, the first iteration I remember that we tried was Acro, right? Yeah, Acro then- came after Coral. Before infinite volumes, before yep. flex groups. Right. So we had acro, then we had infinite volumes, and then we have flex groups. So can you walk me through why metadata workloads work better with flex groups as opposed to something like acro or infinite volume? Yeah. Uh, well, Coral and infinite volumes both had a metadata bottleneck. That is, they they would put all the metadata, all the directory structure, the file attributes, that sort of stuff. They would they would put that all in one container volume, one one flex ball in, in our parlance. And they would put the data payload for all the multiple files onto multiple different volumes. So you could you could imagine that kind of uh, layout lets you get great throughput. You know, plenty of volumes participating in parallel on a given I/O workload. But when it comes time to iterating directories or scanning attributes of files, it it doesn't work so well because you you end up bottlenecking on the one container. So that was both Coral and Infinite Volumes had data structures like that. Acro kind of went the other way. It was a very strong reaction to the the metadata bottleneck, and it distributed everything very, very, well, very granular, very high granularity. The good news of that was it was it was really hard to come up with a workload that Acro could not scale well. It broke up all kinds of things into lots of little pieces, but it did come with a really high tax. That is, when you want to access metadata, it, the path length to getting it in Acro was pretty high because we had the metadata spread around all over the place. The flex groups kind of take a, a different approach to this. They use what we would consider a coarse-grained data distribution model, where you have entire branches of the subdirectory tree that live in one place or another, and, and the flex group is able to break them up into tighter branches as ingest load uh, continues if it feels it's necessary. But when it's not, if there's lots of activity on lots of member volumes simultaneously, the flex group makes the grant, the distribution even more coarse in order to reduce the metadata costs for fetching data from a uh, from the, the overall distributed storage system. 
Yeah, so basically if it's running with a lot of load, we're going to have more locality with those folders as opposed to spreading it out across multiple volumes. You said it better than I did. Yes, exactly. That's what, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I, I do words. <laughs> so, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, the acro problem of like, you know, having to access things and it, it creates a metadata problem there. Um, but what I'm hearing from the Flex Group is that it solves, it mostly solves an ingest problem, but what does it do for those throughput scenarios? Like how does it compare in throughput to something that stripes? Well, it's, it's actually, uh, judging it, say, infinite volumes was great at throughput. For example, that was that was its primary goal was to be able to store a lot of data and deliver high bandwidth. In in uh, benchmark trials, infinite volumes actually don't get the same throughput performance as flex groups do. We we actually beat them by about ten percent, even though that was infinite volumes forte. And the reason for that is the same reason that inf- that flex groups work so well with metadata. It's that for most of your traffic, the flex group is actually using flex vols in exactly the way FlexVols want to be used. That is, that you have the directories and the files really close to each other. The traffic flows along the same path that FlexVols have always used. So it's, it's kind of the optimized path that NetApp has spent 20 years now refining and cleaning up to make the protocol traffic go from the client through the, uh, through the protocol handlers and down to the disks and down to the RAID layer as quickly as possible. The Flex groups use that same path for almost all their traffic. And it, it's the very rare exception case where we bump into what I'm sure you've heard before, these remote hard links, the distribution points where we say this file doesn't live on this volume, it lives somewhere else. Those are fairly rare. And when you hit them, we have to, it takes longer. But because they don't show up very often, the flex group uses the, the faster path from regular flexible traffic a lot more often. And that's what gives it a higher performance than even infinite volumes can do for throughput. Well, with infinite volumes, you also had that extra hop, right? You had that 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 namespace volume where you had to kind of always right. traverse. Exactly. Anytime you had to hit any metadata in the infinite volume, you definitely would bottleneck. But even for regular I/O, because of the way the infinite volume was organized, it had a lot more. I consider it friction. It was a lot more thinking it had to do along the I/O path than flex groups do. Well, you know, enough about infinite volume because we've, we've killed that effectively, right? This is 9.5. We've deprecated it. It's no longer available to use or access or create, right? So if you go to 9.5 and you're using infinite volume, you actually can't go to 9.5. You have to actually remove the infinite volumes first. But so let's talk more about flux root volumes. Um, so you mentioned, you know, this, this way of the ingest, and there's something behind that called a heuristic or an algorithm that does the ingest calculations and figures that out. Could you walk us through how that all works for us? Or are we going to talk about math now? Yes, math. Oh. Always math. Yeah, the, well, flex groups have this, uh, they have a complication. If you, if you have a number of nodes in your cluster and you have a bunch of data you want to store in them, the, the flex group doesn't really know which of the files that you're creating, which of the directories you're creating are going to get big later. All it knows is that you are trying to create a directory or you're trying to create a file at the moment. And so it has to make its best guess about where it should put each individual directory and file in order to get the best possible performance. There's always a trade-off to be made. We, we can either put the next file and next directory on the easiest and fastest to access volume, which gives us the lowest latency and the best performance for sheer speed, or we can try to put it on some volume that isn't really participating in the workload yet to encourage it to participate in parallel. And that gives us better data distribution. So in the one hand, we get 
lower latency and higher performance for a single node. And on the other hand, we get higher latency but better distribution across multiple nodes. And there's this, this ongoing trade-off that happens all the time. And the decisions that we have to make are really made, as you say, at ingest time. They're at, the, at the moment, we're creating a directory or a file. It's not like we, we want to go in later and try to move that data that we've already placed because, I mean, moving data is expensive and you'd rather have your filers actually serving your primary workload instead of just moving stuff around for the fun of it. So we try to make those decisions at the moment that you create new directories and new files. And we rely on a fairly complex set of code called the, the ingest heuristics that help advise the Flex Group about where to put new content based on what it has seen your workload doing in the past. But the idea is that whatever you were doing for the last 30 seconds, the last five minutes, and the last three hours is probably analogous to what you're going to be doing in the next five seconds, the next 30 seconds, the next five hours, and so on. Make any sense? Yeah, makes sense. I didn't even use any math. I, I skipped all the math. Well, I mean, Ooh. I was kind of hoping you wouldn't skip the math. Let's let's talk about tolerance and urgency and how that all works with the with the ingest, right? Like, how does that well, all balance? Well, if you're if you're really uh, looking for some math, uh, I will uh, brag for Richard a little bit here that, that we are going to be publishing a, a paper. Uh, we're we're still in the in the final review stages, but getting a, a Usenix paper published uh, that will go deep deep into that math and really uh, satisfy your curiosity. Ooh. And as, as with anything, right, the, these heuristics run version seven, I think of the heuristics, yep. right? They get smarter uh, every release, um, you know, really, really teaching them to, uh, as you kind of hinted at, right? Since you, since you know a little bit of what's under the covers there, right? We have all sorts of kind of tunables uh, that are designed to be, to, to self-tune, right? To, to decide, how, you know, how much should we be concerned that we're about to fill up one of the constituents? How much should we be, you know, erring towards just spread the load as, as wide as you can and, and, you know, open the throttle, right? So uh, there's a whole bunch of parameters. We hope that nobody ever has to look at them. They are, they are down in there. Uh, it's right? pretty it, rare. Yeah, it, it's pretty rare that, that you know, that, that we get to a place where we actually have to, right? Because they're really designed to, um, you know, look at, Look at how we're performing and decide whether to uh, continue on down the same path or, or shift behavior. So, so earlier you mentioned um, about moving data around, and I guess that triggered a, a question that I get a lot: is you know why can't I rebalance my data? Um, so, what's the thinking behind data rebalance and why we haven't pursued that? Oh, this is one of my favorite hot topics. So, yeah. so one way in which we do allow rebalancing, right, is we do allow it at the constituent level, right? So we do have the ability to, you know, if, if we're getting an imbalance in terms of nodes, right, some, this is a, something that might happen if you, you know, added a whole new set of nodes and disks to a cluster, right, and you wanted to spread that, you know, balance that flex group onto there, right? And, and we've played around with, with automating that, but, but you can do that currently, right? Um, you know, one of the things Richard was hinting at is that when you start talking about moving individual files, um, you have to start thinking about a few things, one of which is, um, do I really want to try to start, you know, driving more I.O. to copy this file that's heavily loaded to somewhere else, right? And how long is that single file going to stay heavily loaded for, you know, it... <laughs> Is moving that file gonna gonna really help me, or or is the the load gonna shift as I get there? Right. So, um, you know, in practice, we haven't really seen that that's an effective way. You know, it, in theory, it it makes a lot of sense, right? It's why the question comes up a lot. It's it's a perfectly reasonable question, 
But in practice, we haven't really seen that as a, an effective tool so far. Yeah, generally when we're moving, when we're actually moving blocks, we're either moving them to a faster tier, and that faster tier is usually some type of RAM, because they're going there anyway in order to go out to the host, and they're just going to stay there a little longer, or it's infrequently accessed data that we're going to you know spit out to a slower uh, tier of storage. It, it's rarely the case that you would move uh, hot data uh, to a physically different place that's not you know in the data path already closer to the host. Right. And, yeah, and you yeah. mentioned tiering there, right? And and that's where you know rather than developing a, a parallel solution within flex groups, right? Um, you know, NetApp has fabric pools, um, and um, you know, somewhere when we get to all the things that have changed since nine one, right? Support for fabric pools is, is one of those. Yeah, and really, the question really comes up when you start explaining to people how flex groups work, and they start to get their minds churning, and they're like, "Wait a minute, what if files start piling up in a volume, or what if I delete a bunch of data and it just happens to get lucky and deleted out of one member, right?" Or maybe what happens if I create a large file in a flex group volume member and all the other volumes are now out of whack? Uh, so that's where the, the redistribution of data question often comes up and you know why people want things to move around. So Richard always does a good job of explaining why we don't need that with the ingest heuristics. So Richard, um, uh, let me pull the string on you so you can answer this question wow. again. There's <laughs> uh, a lot of pressure there. I don't know. I always do a good job. No, I, I generally do a terrible job of explaining this, which is why I have to keep explaining it. No, the, uh, you have to keep explaining it because it's it's just the question that keeps coming up. And, and but if we have it in podcast form, maybe it'll resonate with more people. <laughs> well, you you listed a couple of really good examples there. You know, for example, let's say I I create a bunch of stuff and then I decide I don't want this project tree anymore and I delete it. Well, you know, delete it. I mentioned earlier the Flex Group tries to keep sometimes entire subtrees of content all co-located. That gives you the the best performance, really low latency, because that's how Flexball like to work. So if you delete that subproject, doesn't that produce a usage disparity among your member volumes? So you know, this, suddenly this member has more free space than the other one, and it does. That that's exactly true. So a lot of people would look at that and say, well, clearly I've got a I've got a problem now. I, how can I rebalance this? Well, the thing is, you shouldn't have to. You know, the the flex groups ingest heuristics will see that disparity among the member volumes, and they, they see it because we watch the flex group status multiple times a second, we, we have this process that's constantly observing all the member volumes and comparing them and trying to, to balance the numbers to see how it should be treating them. And if it sees a sudden usage disparity appear like this, where there's all this ex extra free space on one member volume, what the heuristics will do is they will subtly, and that by subtly, I mean by a few percentile points, they will increase the amount of traffic that they route to that member volume. So in, if you have four member volumes, you would think in steady state, you'd be getting 25% of your traffic to each of these member volumes. So, so that if you were to create a thousand files, you'd get you know, 250 here and 250 there and 250 there. But when there is a large usage disparity like that, the flex group will adjust those percentiles and it'll start putting 200 on the member one and 200 on member two and 200 on member three but it'll put 400% on member four because it's so much extra free space. And those are those numbers are a little overzealous, but you get the idea. There, there's an increase in traffic placement that goes onto those underserved member volumes. And it's not enormous because if we made it enormous, then we would see a, a bottleneck in behavior as well because you ingest all your data into one member volume and suddenly all your traffic goes there. But we do have a preferential treatment to the underfilled member volumes. Likewise, if we see your traffic workflow shifting, 
uh, especially in, in the latest versions of ONTAP 9.5 and going forward, if we see that some member volumes are much more busy than others, that that itself will affect how we apportion traffic to each member volume inside the heuristics. Using the placement of new content as kind of an engine to drive how the the traffic workflow should behave thereafter. So, you know, the idea being that when you create a file, that's when it's most busy. Right. So, so when you say busy, is that how is it measuring that? How is it quantifying that? Well, for for traffic workload, we can we look at I/O, we look at metadata activity, uh, we also look at the sheer usages on the member volumes and compare them among each other, um, just to try to keep the the workload distributed and the storage usage distributed as well. So basically, we're taking into account not just file count as well as capacity, but now performance of member volumes in addition. Exactly. To that. And that started yeah, in nine we, five. Well, there it's always been there. Uh, in nine five, I, I think in, we used to call this process slipstreaming back in the Microsoft days. I, I don't think they use that phrase anymore, but we now call them just patches. So, in one of the latest nine five patches, we are we're definitely ramping up the rates at which we are looking at the dynamic activity from moment to moment, second to second, and minute to minute across the member volumes, and having the flex heuristics react to that very strongly. Um, they've, they've always had some degree of reaction to that. They, uh, you know, since, since the earliest days of ONTAP 9.1, where flex groups were observing the, the uh, dynamic load as well as the storage usage to try to decide how to place their ingest heuristics or how to place the, the new content using the heuristic. Um, but they're, they're definitely getting a lot more aggressive in that way now. Okay, yeah, caveat. I didn't know that we actually took in performance into account in the early releases. I thought that we were just now doing that because of the imbalance stuff, but good to know. Yeah, I we do. Even the, I learned uh, something now. <laughs> well, the, the earliest techniques that we used back in 9.1 uh, would relate to the, the amount of traffic that was arriving on any given member volume over a particular uh, range of Oh, oh the n seconds worth of inode allocations. Exactly. Exactly. We would see how much, how many new files were being created here versus over there and compare those things. And if some members are looking more busy than others on that metric, then they would hand away more of their new inbound traffic to try to even things out. Yeah, so we're, we're just kind of going a step above that, looking at sheer metadata counts and I/O counts now. Yeah, and the problem with that is, is you know that works great for small file workloads, but when you start dealing with large file workloads, you're not necessarily exactly. going to get that kind of disparity uh, usage there. Right, and that's kind of what started uh, this patch, right? I mean, we had an issue where a volume filled up and it started just wreaking havoc on performance, and we needed to do something about that. Well, that's actually what I was saying. The, uh, the flex group likes to emphasize member volumes that are um, slightly under full by giving them slightly more traffic. Well, if you let that process run away too far, then the flex group would start putting a whole bunch of new traffic on the member volumes that are substantially under full. And if that happens, you, you can imagine that those new files, new directories you create, if they all get put on the one member volume, that member volume is probably going to become a bottleneck for a while, right? And all that stuff that you're creating is going to have to get some kind of I.O. Um, and we saw some cases where the flex group was doing that. that that's what triggered the, the, the uh, heuristic fix in the first place. It was kind of rare. I mean, obviously, it, it slipped through a lot, of, a lot of our other testing, and we haven't seen a whole bunch of people run into it, but it is something we wanted to get in front of. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff has to be tickled by workloads. I mean, there's a lot of different awesome. workloads out there, and we can only simulate so many. Yeah, <laughs> you said a mouthful. Yeah, and the, the other interesting thing uh, about about the way the heuristics work is, um, you know, 
you, you said simulate, and it's actually very hard to simulate these because often uh, a benchmark, right, like a, a performance benchmark, um, you know, it, it lays things out perfectly evenly, right? It's, it's when you get into a, a real-life workload, you know, where you get, you know, like, like in our build, you get a random, you know, one gig file here in one directory and then some other directory that has, you know, 10,000 files in it, right? Those sort of kind of, uh, you know, abnormalities in, in the data distribution are actually pretty important, right? So, so teaching the heuristics to kind of be ready for all, all of that noise is, is really the challenge. So you say we're up to version seven of the heuristics. That means we've changed the heuristics, you know, five or six times prior to this, right? Um, we've changed a lot more than that. It's just that we've had at least seven iterations now that are substantially different from the stages before. Oh, you've had minor releases. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. Well, I mean, it's like any other software house. We're constantly making small fixes. Sometimes they're, they're so small that they're barely even worth a separate bug listing. Um, sometimes they're fairly significant or adding a new feature or compatibility with something. But, for example, when we came time to add Fabric Pool support to Flex Groups, we had to adjust the heuristic because Fabric Pool involves taking, you know, tearing away data that used to live on the aggregate and now it lives in the cloud. And that means that the free space on the aggregate has changed. And if you see the free space on the aggregate changing, will the ingest heuristic see that as a big hole where they need to fill? And we, we don't want them to overreact to that. And so we had to go through a process of evaluating how Fabric Pools and the ingest heuristics would play together, and that caused us to make some re some revisions for ONTAP 9.5. So do those Fabric Pool ingest changes only activate when you enable Fabric Pool, or are they there already for everything else? Well, it turns out that they were they were serendipitous. Um, it, fabric Pool is one of many features in ONTAP that plays fast and loose with the internal accountings of free space. We have a lot of features that, for performance reasons, will accumulate changes and then drop them, drop them all to the disks. You know, we have uh, what we call zombies for being able to free content so that you can, as an administrator, you delete a file or delete a directory and it, you get back a response quickly. Okay, that's gone. But in truth, it takes us a little while to actually free the free space. And until that, that process of zombifying, of deleting the zombies is complete, Waffle internally thinks there's more usage than there really is. We have other mechanisms that similarly gather up this uh, amount of data, and, and we'll release it back to the internal file system in chunks or in pieces. And so the Flex Group needed to, or the ingest heuristics needed to become a little more savvy about the dynamics of the free space accounting on volumes anyway. So it just so happened that Fabric Pools came along at a good time for us to fix those issues, and they were, we were able to deal with all of those as one set of heuristic changes. Yeah, I think uh, old-time listeners will remember we had a an entire episode on zombies, uh, I believe the waffle episode. Yeah, we had a waffle deep dive. You know, we've, we've mentioned fabric pools a few times, and that's one of the new features in ONTAP, so I think it'd be a good time to start talking about what we've improved since episode 46, uh, which is quite a bit, but we're going to just, we're not going to cover everything. We're going to cover the highlights. Um, and, and to do that, let's just cover the highlights of each release. Uh, so, so Dan, uh, 9.2, um, do, you, do you know what we added in that? That was, that was, Crucial. Important. Oh man, you're going to make me not just oh, remember oh. three years worth order of stuff, but do it. Oh, do it Pop yeah. quiz. Okay. Um, so if I remember, 9.2 wasn't terribly large because 9.1 was a, an enormous payload yeah. for us, right? That was the we, first GA of, of Flex Groups. We literally had a lot of people um, going on vacation. We had volume granular encryption support, I believe, came in 9.2 and support for software defined on tap. Um, and I think we did a bunch of things around uh, the, the deploy, improving the deploy oh, process. Yeah, I for Flex about that. 
yeah, that's, that's about when that came in. So let's talk about that deploy process because that's one that kind of trips people up a little bit. So we used to have this command called flex group deploy. And tell us what that did and why we needed to change it. Okay, so flex group deploy was, was a command to basically help you uh, with the allocation of constituents, uh, you know, deciding how many you needed and where to place them. Uh, and, um, you know, just automating some of the, some of the thinking there. Um, I think the main reason it needed to change was just to, because, you know, having, having a separate command for configuring flex groups versus flex vols really kind of wasn't intuitive to people. Uh, so a lot of that logic still is in there, uh, is still in the product, but, uh, I think now it's, you know, when you do a volume create, it's, uh, um, I'm gonna have to remember my command line foo, but there's a provision it as a flex group. It's auto provision uh, as. Auto provision as. There you go. Um, three of, three of. I got most of, most of the words there, uh, and and also that's you know that's the 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 method that the system manager uses uh, to create a flex group, right? So, so simplifying it down to what aggregates do you want to put this on, as opposed to yeah you know, kind of really detailed layout of your constituents. Yeah, and that deploy command would basically take a look at the system, and I guess it would hard code the number of member volumes it would create, right? It actually didn't take into account the actual number of affinities in the system. Well, I think it takes into account indirectly by by looking at the number of aggregates, um, and uh, I think we did a little bit of experimentation to determine uh, on on the different platforms what what the what's optimal. Yeah, so because now, I mean, we, we've increased the number of affinities we can have in a system, right? We used to be limited to 8 per node, and now in 9.4 and later, we can do 16 per node in some platforms. Right. It, but, but it turns out that, um, you know, the optimal point is not a, a, as many constituents as there are affinities. Uh, we actually yeah. did some of those experiments because we debated going higher. Uh, you know, there's, there's trade-offs in either direction, but, but you know, the, the, the optimal point isn't, isn't just maxing out the number of constituents. So what is the optimal point? Where did we find, where did we land in that? Right now we're at four per aggregate, but, you still, know, still very four per aggregate. Okay. consult your, consult your uh, documentation. Well, that's why I asked, because I have to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, let me double check before you write that one. So, Justin, have you heard of this best practices document? <laughs> I've heard of it. It's kind of a, a thesis of sorts, like a... a I heard it's kind of it's, it's a kind manifesto, of, maybe. I heard it's kind of a dry read. It is a dry read. If you're looking for a way to fall asleep at night, TR four five seven one will get you there. Do you read that to the kids? I do. Bedtime. He's he's an expert in flux groups now. Um, Nine point two also brought us aggregate inline deduplication. Um, so that's interesting because a flux group spans multiple volumes in a single aggregate. So now you are getting benefits of storage efficiencies with a flex group that you might not get with flex vols. Um, so that's just another thing that got added in 9.2 that I think that was interesting for, for flex groups. Yep. So, Dan, uh, 9.3, let's hear what you got. I've, I've got the list in okay. front of me. So if you if you start to, like, falter, I'll, I'll, I'll rescue you. But if you've got the list, why is Dan having to go through this? <laughs> yeah, because that's fun. <laughs> just, uh, how, they, how they entertain themselves. All right, so... Uh, Are you not entertained? <laughs> The big one in 9.3 was SnapVault support. Yep. Um, Correct. And I think there was uh, a bunch of features around SMB. So so watches first came in 9.3 and, and antivirus support. Uh, support for Q-Trees and AutoGrow, I think, were the other big things that yep, came in there. Yep, that's correct. All of those are correct. We, ha- we have a winner. What did he win? I don't know. Let me, let, me, uh, let, me find one. <laughs> let me find my sound effects real quick. 
You would have clapped. <laughs> no, I don't know right. if you can hear that. I don't it's know if you can clap, hear that. Can you hear that? Could you hear that clap? I don't know. I could. I could. Yeah. All right, good. That was a great clap. Congratulations. <laughs> kind of a golf clap, but I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. Well, you know, hey. Um, you get what you get. Uh, so, uh, that, yeah, those those features were there. So, Q trees. Um, that was basically base level. This is what we're gonna do for Q trees, right? It wasn't the full fledged quota enforcement. It wasn't like Q tree right. statistics. So that kind of brings me to one other question I had was, you know, why don't we give all the stuff at once? Great question. So, um, you know, around the nine one time frame, I believe it was. I believe it was between 9.1 and 9.2, we moved on tap to a, a six-month cadence delivery model, right? So, um, you know, every six months, releasing new feature and new content, moving, you know, as, you know, much more towards the continuous deployment model uh, than, than we had been previously. Uh, but but it still is, you know, an enterprise software system. So, so I don't know that we're ever going to go to, you know, the the auto update every day type yeah. type yeah, model. We do a lot of testing. Before yeah, there's, there's a lot that's involved in qualifying with these. Um, but, you know, moving to that model uh, makes it much more natural to go with a, you know, deploy the, deploy the minimum viable product and, and keep iterating. Um, and, you know, the, the, the choice really comes down to, you know, do we wait, you know, three years, right? Flex Groups is a complex distributed file system, right? There, there's Moving to six-month cadence doesn't suddenly make everything only take six months, right? So there's still a whole lot of complex work, uh, and we're actually in, in 9.4 9.5. going to get to some of my favorite ones. Uh, but, right, you know, these still kind of are each, – each feature we add is a distri- distributed systems problem that, that's complex and, and a lot of fun for us. But, um, you know, the, the decision that, that we've gone to is, you know, to, to release the value that we have when we have it, uh, and we, we certainly understand that – Everyone, no one more than Richard and myself would like to get these out the door faster. Uh, but you know, you know, given the given the uh, resources we have and the other innovation going on in ONTAP, right? We're 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 plugging through them as as quickly as we can, and uh, you know, opening up the 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 goodness of flex groups to more and more uh, customers and workloads each release. So, so to play devil's advocate here, um, you mentioned complexity and you know the distributed file system being a reason. But what about stuff like flex group rename? <laughs> Why didn't that make it in? That doesn't sound like it's complex, or is it? Um, so that's that's certainly not uh, you know that's that's not an enormous one, but it's just one that 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 fell down the the priority chain. Right, right. And, um, and and I wasn't trying it, to like it is a simple one. It's actually one that you know. Uh, <laughs> I was I was not was denigrating. Not, yeah, yeah I, was, I was I was very frustrated not to get that out the door quicker because it's just a little it's a it's. It's not a big one, uh, but you know there were just some some key critical things that um, you know customers really needed to unlock the value of the workflow. Right? Yeah. You can you can deal with you can deal with not being able to rename your volume, even though it's annoying. Uh, if you have a workflow braced around you know um, you know snap fault, right? You you can't work around not having snap fault, right? So. Yeah, and then that wasn't it wasn't meant to be denigrating. It was like, hey, we have things that <laughs> <I know. laughs> make more sense to put in there first, right? So things like yep. Snapball, like you mentioned, or Q trees and you know, things that are actually useful as opposed to rename. Because rename you can get around by just unmounting and remounting with a junction path. Because you're not accessing right. the volume via name. 
You're accessing yep. it via Junction Path. Rename is for the admins who named it like, you know, cool flex group. They want to change it to something else, right? You want to cut, change it to the actual workload name. Yep. Well, in, in fairness, we did do it eventually. We, <laughs> I'm proud of you. <laughs> hold Thank on, hold, you. Hold on. I got something for you. I just gave you the clap. Um, so ONTAP 9.4, uh, what did we get in that? Um, okay, so in 9.4, I think the biggest one was was that's where we started getting some QoS support. Uh, I guess some of, some, some of the very basic stuff came in 9.3, but um, QoS uh, was a big one. The, the third-party snap diff, uh, some of the SMBF policy and, and audit. Um, and then... Um, you know, we had a we had a bunch of performance improvements in nine four, I believe, yeah. as well. So ONTAP nine dot five, what did we add in there, Dan? Okay, so ONTAP nine dot five. So the 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 big the big headline item there was was quota enforcement. Uh, that that was made generally available in, in nine dot five, um, and that was that was that was a really exciting one, right? So I mean, of of all the distributed systems problems, right, that we've that we've had to solve with Inflex groups. Um, you know, making fi- finding a way to make uh, a distributed quota both efficient and accurate uh, was 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 really neat. Uh, the, the, the stuff that the the folks who worked on that came up with, uh, you know, basically, right? It, it's a, it's a complex it's a complex problem where right you 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 want to be accurate, but you can't uh, you know in the in the course of doing a right, you can't go talk to everybody just to be absolutely sure where they're. You know where they're at from an allocation perspective, uh, but then you you have to be pretty close to, to accurate um, because you you can't let file ops go through that are going to go over your quota. So uh, they came up with a really cool uh, you know algorithm that keeps keeps in constant communication. You can kind of steal quota from other folks, but you get you get a budget so that um, you can you can most of the time run without having to talk to anybody. Um, so that one was that one was really exciting, and that that was one that uh, for a lot of our key customers uh, and and workloads, uh, that was that was a really critical feature for them. And it's interesting that you introduced it nine dot five because that was also where Fabric Pool came in. So you created a, an additional problem that Quotas had to solve because you had to deal with not having the space yep. there. Yep. Yeah. There, there may be some some darker reason behind, you know, suddenly getting quota enforcement out at the same time as fabric pools. Really? Maybe there's well, something maybe related. Maybe there's, oh, it's the deep state. That's what it was. I think, it's, you know, when, <laughs> when it's time to railroad, you railroad. And in this case, we, we had a lot of customers who wanted quota enforcement very badly. And so we were working on that. And uh, similarly, tiering was becoming more and more active in the industry, and we wanted fabric pools. Choo-choo. Yeah, so you you gave me the answer to, to the other big one in nine five, right? Which was I did. Cool. Well, you already mentioned it, so I was gonna that was a freebie. Um, I got credit for that already. All right. Yeah, yeah. So, with along with quota enforcement, what else did we add for Q tree enhancement bonus round? Ooh. <laughs> oh, Q tree statistics nine dot five, right? So that's the the ability to to kind of get performance statistics at a at a Q tree level. You get a bell now. <laughs> They seem like such simple things, don't they? You know, oh, quotas, oh, Q-trees. It's not like we didn't have quotas before. It's not like we didn't have right. Q-tree statistics before. But when you are working with a distributed file system, the, the technical problems are so much higher. There's a reason that we can't just implement all the complex features at once because they are just, every one of them requires some innovation to make it happen. 
Yeah, and I think from the customer perspective, they're looking at it from, hey, you had these in Flexballs. Why aren't you just doing it right. the same, right? Why, why can't you do it? You're just running these on Flexballs. It should be easy. But, you know, it, it, yeah. there's some tough problems to solve there when you're starting to traverse nodes and clustered networks and different volumes, right? Yeah. And we've, we've right. Had- and being enterprise class, we also have to deal with failure conditions. Like, let's take still got rename. because you brought it up earlier, and I still feel kind of bruised about that. But let's say you want to rename a volume. You've got a flex group that there are 32 member volumes say that you want to rename every one of them has got the old name in there and we have to fix them all. Well, we get halfway through that and one of your nodes fails over because of some powered failure in your lab. You know, we have to have the code that can roll that back or finish applying it and keep track of the state when we've modified some volumes, but not others. Every problem that you do, every, even the little simple things like rename are, they're just so much more complex in a distributed file system. All right. So, um, we also added uh, SMB feature parity enhancements. I'll, I'll cover that one. So basically, it's in, in improving um, the change notify code. So in 9.3, we added change notify for SMB2 and greater. Change notify is basically the system talking to the client constantly saying, hey, do you have anything new for me? Do you have anything new for me? When you do, with, when you do that in a system that has millions of files, that can get pretty costly in terms of performance. Um, so we actually recommend if you don't need change notify in SMB2 in those releases, don't don't turn it on. Um, but in 9.5, we added something called inherited change notifies, which allows you to have just the change notify at the parent level as opposed to the entire volume. Did yeah, I, that, that's another perfect yeah. example of something that sounds simple and is ridiculously complex in a distributed file system because your your parent directory is on a different volume. The root directory lives here, and then its child directory is on this other volume, and the next child directory is on a different volume. So an inherited watch is one that you place at a top-level directory or a high-level directory, and you expect it to trigger whenever anything under that directory changes. Well, how do you do that when you're not even on the same node? You know, that, that's some pretty complex stuff to get it to work. So I, I was pretty, uh, pretty happy when they finally figured a way to make that happen correctly on a flex group. I think many people were happy about that. <laughs> There's some people that have, you know, their workloads depend on change notify, right? They want to write a file and immediately read it. So, well, yeah, most most people don't even know what change notify is. They've never heard of watches or change notify, but when they open volume, you know, explorer on a Windows machine, that change notify is active all the time. That's what allows the window to refresh. If somebody creates a new file, you'll just see an icon up here. That's because of change notify. So and until we had those inherited watches working correctly, you know, customers would see strange things in their Windows Explorers and they'd get upset and we'd get phone calls. So I'm, I'm delighted to have that finally working the way it should. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now, last but not least, we're at, we're at the 9.6 release now. What's, what well, we get? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one more thing. Oh. It's not exactly a 9.5 feature, but okay. if you go read a, a, a fine blog by this fellow, Justin, um, you know, we, we set some records with 9.5, right? Oh, we, yeah, we uh, did. I forgot about that. We, uh, we had some, some, some record-setting spec SFS software build performance. Um, I, I haven't checked since, since February, but, but as of February, we had, we had the, you know, by, by a good margin, the, the, the best performance on that, on that benchmark, um, and that was run on flex groups. So that was yeah. kind of a, a combination of all the things that, that built up to that point, right? All the heuristics changes and the, you know, you know, one of the great things about flex groups is we get the benefit of all the other performance optimizations ONTAP is doing for flex balls, right? So that's not something that 
you know, entirely the credit goes to the folks in, in the room here. But, uh, you know, all together, putting that all together, uh, some pretty impressive numbers. Well, it's chocolate and peanut butter, really, right? I mean, you guys got the yep. enhancements of all the all flash. We ran on all flash this time. So the original spec SFS was done on like spinning disk. And the idea was, hey, you can get great value out of flex groups just by running spinning disk. You don't have to have all flash. But here's what you can do if you have all flash. And it was like, if there's a graph out there, one of the TRs, where it's basically showing the all flash system versus the spinning disk. And the latency and per you know per IOPS total is way way better with the flash system, and it's just the way it is. I mean, in addition to that, we were running a newer version of ONTAP, you know, because we were running a nine point two in the original one. Now we're running nine five, so you get better ingest heuristics, you get all the performance improvements you get with the flash systems. So a lot of things going on there. But yeah, we we basically we're in a, an arms race with competitors to see who could get the best overall response times in the spec SFS test. And so far, we are in the lead. Yeah, and the, the other really cool thing from our perspective, right, we, we talked a little bit about how Flex Groups distribute the data. Um, you know, the, the numbers from a four-node to a eight-node to a 12-node cluster, uh, they scale pretty darn close to linearly, right? And that's that's kind of the best we could hope for in Flex Groups is to, is to approach that, you know, linear scaling. Um, and seeing that actually happen on a, a real industry benchmark was pretty exciting. Yeah, it makes you wonder. It's like, well, if... if the four node or the 12 node numbers aren't high enough, just throw some more nodes on there, right? I mean, it's not like we isn't going to keep going up. Well, I mean, in, in reality, you know, those numbers are going to keep going up because we're going to start changing the networks out, right? We're going to have faster networks in the back end, and then I'll be able to handle more traffic, which the Flex Group will benefit from. Exactly. All right, so Dan, um, I, I joked about uh, Flex Group rename, <laughs> but that's in 9.6. So what else do we have in 9.6? Uh, so the, the the biggest thing that went into nine six was uh, support for metric cluster. Um, so that's a that's been a big ask from a lot of our uh, customers, especially in Europe. Uh, it's very popular. Um, let's see what else went into? Oh, the other uh, big exciting thing. I'll, I'll let Richard talk about this one. Yeah, I was going to argue that was actually bigger. The last yeah, elastic, elastic sizing. Elastic sizing. But you yeah. think elastic sizing is bigger than metric cluster? Uh, I think because it affects more of the world, let's talk more about what that solves. It's like saying we have a better airbag in our car now. You know, it, it doesn't mean that your car is crashing all the time. It's just it gives you that extra peace of mind that if you were to crash, then you'd have a little more protection. That's kind of what elastic sizing is. It, it, it's like a really good airbag. So we have all these member volumes in your flex group, and they're not always perfectly the same. You know, if you create a whole bunch of big files and maybe some of those big files will land on one member and not another. And so you'll have more usage on one member than another for a while. And that's usually not a big deal. You know, it comes and goes that the workload shifts and it changes from day to day and from week to week. But what happens if one of those member volumes runs out of space and the others don't? Well, that, that got to be a problem. And that's, that's kind of what the, the, uh, theoretical concern has been. And it's been theoretical for most customers because most customers simply don't run their flex group members out of space. As the flex group gets closer to running out of free space on one member volume or another, the ingest heuristics are very careful to steer traffic away from that over full member. And they've done that since the very first days of flex groups. So it becomes pretty hard for the flex group to actually fill up a member volume without filling up all the member volumes. But it can still happen. Now, if you were to create a, a really big log file, for example, and just keep writing to it and keep writing to it and keep writing to it, well, we don't stripe the file. So wherever it landed, it's going to keep consuming more and more space. And eventually, you could run that volume out of space entirely. And that's what elastic sizing was for. 
Uh, elastic sizing is a feature that is 99.9% of the time doing nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't get involved at all unless it sees an operation like a write or a create or something like that that wants to consume space from the volume is about to fail. And if it sees that it's about to fail for lack of free space, then elastic sizing puts that operation on hold and it looks around all the member volumes and decides, is there free space somewhere else that I could steal and give to this volume so that it could complete this operation? And if so, it, it shrinks one member volume by a little bit and grows this volume by the same amount so that the collective flex group still has the same capacity as it did before, but the free space distribution is a little different. And then we wake up that original operation, the one that was about to fail for lack of space, and we tell it to try again. And it tries again, and so miraculously, this time there is free space, and it can proceed. So elastic sizing keeps making those changes as necessary to forestall that out-of-space situation until you are actually out of space. That's what it does. Yeah, and as you mentioned before, I mean, we don't know when a file comes in how big it's going to be. You know, it's like having a right. baby. You don't know what it's going to turn into. You don't know if it's going to become an astronaut or a well, garbage man. Well, it's definitely going to be a baby. Hey, and the file's definitely... wrong with being an astronaut. Well, no, there's nothing wrong with being an astronaut at all. But, you know, you, you get free ice cream. Um, dry ice cream, but whatever. Uh, so There's nothing wrong with being a garbage man. I, I just, you know, it's different. It's not an, ast- it's not I, an I astronaut. I don't appreciate this classist attitude of yours, Justin. <sighs> yeah, ast- very classist. I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. You don't. Maybe he'll be a TME. God, I hope not. <laughs> anyway. God, I so, hope yeah, not. you don't... <laughs> Maybe he'll be a developer and he'll he'll develop the new oh, Flexgroup no. rename. It's like my favorite Dilbert cartoon. The Dilbert's mom takes him in. He's a little kid. He takes him to the doctor, and the doctor's doing an assessment. He says, "Well, he uh, he fixed my my machine while I was doing the analysis." And she says, "Is that good?" And he says, "No, he'll be an engineer." And she starts crying, and he, he, he's like, "Well, no, don't worry. He can still live a normal life sometimes." <laughs> Yeah, that's about that's about right. So um, that said, I mean, we don't know what the file size is going to be. So you know, when a file comes in, elastic sizing can help kind of provide air cover for that. Now you mentioned that we do a, a pause, um, and that tells me that there's going to be an impact to performance. And uh, we, we've had we've had an offline discussion about this. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like I said, elastic sizing is not doing anything. Yeah, you know, most of the time your volumes are not out of free space, and so elastic sizing doesn't do squat. You know, it's just kind of sitting there. It's like your airbag is not flowing down your car while it's sitting in your dashboard undeployed. But in the event that you are, you know, in a collision, you want the airbag to pop out, but something's already gone wrong. You're, you were just in a collision. And the elastic sizing is a lot like that. If you find yourself relying on elastic sizing, elastic sizing is going to slow things down. It's, it's, uh, it has to take a moment, pause traffic, resize this member volume, resize that member volume, and it has to do it in a fairly carefully atomically controlled fashion so that we don't cause the overall flex group to change any capacity. All that stuff takes time. And you don't want to be doing it during your primary workload. It's keeping you from having your workload crash, but it's slow. And so when elastic sizing is actually actively triggering and and moving the volume's free space around, that your filers are busy doing that instead of doing your primary workload. So it's something that you don't really want to have happening all the time. That's one of the reasons it makes it important to follow best practices. You know, keep some free space. You don't want to rely on your airbag all the time, but it's good to know it's there if you need it. And you mentioned this does this in small increments, right? It grows in in increments. What what are those increments exactly? Oh, we're going to pull out the math now? All right, so exactly. The, uh, the current increments, and I reserve the right to change these later because these are 
software-defined constants, and we, we uh, have not really finalized them. We know what we're shipping with for ONTAP 9.6, but there's no reasonably they're not going to be different in 9.7. Anyway, what we're doing now is we take 1% of the recipient volume's capacity, so the volume that's currently out of free space, and it wants more. We take 1% of his capacity, and we clamp that value to somewhere between the, the limits of 10 megabytes to 10 gigabytes. And that is the amount of free space that we want to steal from some other member volume. If we can't get that amount of free space from some other member volume, then elastic sizing won't do anything because you're basically out of space and it'll just let the operation fail normally. If we can, then we take that amount of free space from one member volume and we add it to this member volume. But we have an additional constraint that we will not steal free space from some other member volume unless we leave at least uh, the same quantity, I think it is, uh, on that donor member volume after the steal. So if I want to take 20 megabytes of free space from some member number four, I won't steal it unless member number four actually has 40 megabytes of free space on it because I don't want to leave it with nothing. So you want it precise, that's, that's the precise. Does it matter where the uh, flex volume that you're taking this capacity from, does it matter what node it lives on? Does it have to be in the same node? No, algorithmically speaking, it doesn't matter. The, the elastic sizing feature is content to steal free space from any member volume, and it will it will do so to forestall you know space errors. But from a administrative perspective, it's generally preferable if we can steal free space from member volumes that are on the same aggregate, because you know it's often these things easier. are thin provisioned; they don't really care. Yeah. Right? It's just a, an accounting trick as to whether we allocate the free space to this member or that member. But when you when you steal free space from members between aggregates, it does affect how much data is on those aggregates overall. And so we, we would prefer to keep it within the local aggregate, but it, it works no matter where the free space is. Elastic sizing, and one reason why I think it's a bigger feature than what you were selling it as is it opens up some new workloads, I think. I think it lets us do things like databases and log files, like you said. Um, it allows us to do maybe VMs in the future, right? So if we have situations where we have files that grow over time, elastic sizing can help us use that airbag more effectively, and we don't worry so much about having a workload that has a file that grows on it. Yeah, I think you're right. It, internally, I can say elastic sizing was definitely viewed as one of the one of the more important aspects to get nailed down before we start saying that we are going to qualify flex groups for use with virtual machine hosting or uh, LUNs or you know, large databases, that kind of thing. Not to say that those workloads don't simply work, but because we're an enterprise class file system, we want to make sure they're going to work in a broad variety of ways. And one of those was worry about storing really large files on a fairly small member volume. You got to make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row to make sure that's going to work well for everyone. There's also feature considerations, right? I mean, like with virtualization, not having flex clone, not having copy offload support, that's pretty big. So, Dan, um, what do you see as the future of FlexGroups? What do you see, you know, just as a general overview of what you think we can potentially do with FlexGroup volumes? Well, so, I mean, we have we have probably another release or two of, of completing the, the feature set of FlexVols, right? We, we, have to, we have to finish that off because that's just, you know, uh, limiting some some of our customers from from using flex groups at all, right? If they have workflows, um, where we want to go from there is really kind of all the all the fun stuff you can build on top of a, a distributed file system once you have it, right? So um, tools tools to make them uh, much simpler, right? I'd love to get to the world where you know you just you just 
plug some disks into your system, you don't think at all about nodes or, or volumes or, or any of that stuff, right? Um, you know, we kind of have all the pieces there today, but, but it, it's, it's still very much the, the flexible management paradigm uh, is, is the way it works today. Um, I'd also love to get to a place where, um, you know, we can give you more insights about what's going on in your file system, right? We've, we're incubating some pretty cool projects to kind of be able to more dynamically uh, tell you tell you about what's going on in your file system and where uh, without you having to set up things like volumes and queue trees to be able to, to, to define things into buckets and, and understand what's going on, right? If you just have one big flex group and you have you know, you just open that up to your user base, right? We, we'd like you to be able to kind of have the same insight that you have today, but today you have to kind of make a whole bunch of plans up front to say, well, this this development team gets this volume and this one gets this other volume, and then we, you know, we track things from there. So, so those are kind of the two two big directions I'd like to see us go once we get past the you know com completing the feature set, right? Which is very important, but uh, you know, from from our perspective, the fun really starts once we've got that done. Would you concur, Richard? Does the fun really start? The fun never stops here. <laughs> it's like a fun house. It's like a fun house out here. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that, that, maybe that's accurate. <laughs> I've been to Pittsburgh. I know what it looks like out there. It's a fun house. You guys have carnivals, cotton candy, pony rides. Cotton pierogies. Cotton pierogies, that's true. They are. It's like a cotton candy, but you know, more pierogies. Just cut, <laughs> cut, pierogi stuff with cotton candy. We have an idea now. I would totally eat that. That's definitely a carnival thing. We should have that at a carnival. Deep fried cotton candy filled pierogies. Yeah. Stop it. You're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So flex group volumes, uh, lots of new stuff in 9.6. If you're interested in learning more about flex group volumes, we have a variety of resources. TR4571, the best practices. TR4557, the overview. TR4571-A, the abbreviated best practices, in case you don't want to read 150 pages of best practices. Um, we have an FAQ. If you're uh, internal to NetApp, it's on the field portal. We have an SE presentation. It's also on uh, the field portal if you're internal to NetApp, our partner. We have blogs. We have podcasts. We, ha we I, I, I have a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm not trying to brag, but there's a lot of stuff out there. We have a data protection best practices, TR4678. I could go on. Yeah, this, uh, this isn't your focal review. Jeff, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, Richard, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. And, you know, honestly, these guys are the ones that I, sh I should be thanking because they give me all the information that I can port over and give to you in, in TR in podcast format. That's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, appreciate it, guys. Oh, also, I didn't mention, uh, if you want to contact us, ng-flexgroups-info at netapp.com or just flexgroups-info at netapp.com to ask us questions, find out what's coming and that sort of thing. Or if you need help in configuring things, I, I, I generally answer that. Me and me and Mir and all are basically the ones that answer that deal. So. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Dan Tennant and Richard Jernigan for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah.
Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh yeah. <laughs> 